Well, it was at this point in our worship service that our Cactus Campus and our venue across our campus, as well as the chapel venue right next door, join us for our time in the Word. And I'm going to do something a little bit different before we turn to the Word this morning. I want to uh, just update you all, as well as our venues, on some things going on with our entire church. I, I call times like these family matters. If you have ever grown up in a family, and most of you have, you know there's a time when you're invited into the living room uh, to deal with family issues. And, you know, sometimes they can be really ominous things, and then other times they can be really good things. And, and so if you're wondering, here's the good news, it's really good things uh, going on at our church right now that I want to just make sure we're all aware of that we're communicating in a very, very timely way. And so there's two things I want to make us all aware of. Uh, the first is that as of today, with the completion of our Student Ministries Center, uh, which as we mentioned, you can tour here on our campus uh, afterward, uh, we are now finished with phase one of our Shea Campus redesign. And phase one has been huge, arguably the largest uh, uh, part of our phase. It, it included the uh, new student ministry center, the new chapel, the new special ministry space, and then the new offices space. And uh, after this, we're going to be embarking on phase two, which we've already started, which is in the center of our campus, which will be the new children's ministry space, doubling our children's ministry space, complete with a cafe off the back for fellowship space and food and things like that. And then when that's done next summer, we're going to embark on phase three, which is going to be remodeling the Shea Sanctuary here, or worship center, and then also adding enrichment class space. And Lord willing, all of this will be done <laughs> by November of 2015. Now, I want to share with you some amazing, amazing news. And that is that everything we have done to date, the chapel, the special ministry space, the offices, and now the student ministry space, because of your generosity and faithfulness, we have been able to do with cash completely up to this point. And here's what's really cool. There's a lot more we could add to that. We're going to be announcing next month how part of our Compelled by Grace uh, campaign was building a ministry center in Janine, Israel. We did that for cash. We did our Cactus Campus before this campaign. Yep, you can clap at that. <laughs> with, with cash. We did our venue renovations with cash. One of the values of our church is to do all we can to, to never go into debt. We just don't feel that that's the best way to honor God. And so here's the deal. We did secure a line of credit for $5 million through this campaign because we knew that there might come times where our giving, because it's a three-year giving campaign, uh, might not be up to par with the two-year construction campaign. And so we do have a line of credit, but we've not had to dip into that. We're very thankful for God. So here's the numbers to date, and you can see it in your bulletin, but we've had just shy of $10 million has been given generously to the $18.3 million that has been pledged toward the final goal of our Compelled by Grace vision of $21.5 million. And these are really, really encouraging numbers. You just all need to know that. Uh, we are right on track, maybe even a little ahead of schedule, which is why we've been able to do what we've done. 
And in addition to that, and many of you monitor these numbers as well, um, in a post-recession economy, our operating budget, our operating funds, has not fallen by the wayside at all. In fact, we made budget this last fiscal year, and so far this year we're right on track. So this is all very good news no matter how you slice it. So some of you are saying, why are you telling us this? Well, here's the challenge we have going in now to phase two and the next season. And that is that as, as our elders and finance council have monitored this very closely, they wanted me to let you know that we're entering a very tight phase, probably the tightest of this entire project that we're undergoing here. And so that's why in the bulletin you will notice that we try to communicate like crazy to keep us on track for where we need to be financially at each step of the process. So again, we've had almost 10 million given. By the end of September, we need to be at about a total of 11 million. By the end of the year, a total of about 13 million. We do that just so that we're all on the same page and communicating. And yet, even with those goals met, here's the most important thing I need to share with you this morning on this topic, there still is a predicted probability that we will at some point in 2015 have to draw on our line of credit for the simple reason that it's a three-year giving campaign that we're only a year and a half into and a two-year construction campaign. You can do the math. But our goal, and wouldn't this be just awesome, just like God, would be to not have to do, do that at all. Our, our goal would be to continue to see uh, giving and provision come in so that we can continue like we've been continuing. So here's what we're asking of all of you and for our chapel and venue and cactus as we're all in this together. Two things. One, if you are one of the 1,800 families that have pledged to this campaign, just continue to ask God, to help you be faithful in the timely fulfillment of your pledge. That will be the first thing that we ask. Uh, Kim and I stretched ourselves significantly when it comes to this campaign, and we're praying each month how we can continue to be timely in fulfilling our pledge. That will be the first thing we ask. But then secondly, we would ask that if you are one of the families that maybe hasn't participated yet, even though the pledge period is over, or say you're a family that has pledged, but God continues to bless you, uh, we're asking you to consider giving a one-time gift to what we're calling Close the Gap. Uh, you'll see it in the envelope that's in the pew rack in front of you, and I think Cactus Venue and Chap will have them as well. These are our new offering envelopes, and the second line down is called Compelled by Grace, Closing the Gap. And so what we're asking of the congregation at this point is to prayerfully consider a one-time gift that will help us to continue to do things with cash and to not have to go into a line of credit, as well as to close the about $3 million gap that we have between pledges and the cost of the entire project. So we're just presenting this before you. This is your church. We're all in this together, and I firmly believe that as we ask each of us to pray and ask God what he would have us do, that he will continue to provide for us. So that's the first thing I wanted to make you aware of this morning. Now, second announcement, and this is going to blow some of you away. As most of you know, a significant part of our Compelled by Grace vision has been and is to start more multi-site congregations. Our Cactus Campus, which is dialed in live now with us for the, our time in the Word, has been a phenomenal success. It's a 15-minute drive away, 
hundreds of people gather in two services on the campus near Arizona Christian University, and it's two years into it now, and it's just been a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful journey. And so part of Compelled by Grace was to continue to bring Scottsdale Bible Church to other areas so that we can have more outreach to the 80-some-odd percent of Scottsdale people and Phoenix people that aren't going to church. If they won't come to church, we'll bring church to them. That's our vision in reaching the lost as a church community. So as many of you know, we hired Neil Montgomery about a year ago as one of our pastors to come in and help us with our next multi-site. And we have been looking over the last year and praying south into Arcadia, north up north in the air park and even beyond, up by Desert Ridge for a site. And just suffice it to say, we have some really good people working on this, and we just haven't found the next place for us. We thought we came close a couple times, but it just never seemed to come to fruition. And so last spring, we announced to you, because we want Neil to do something for crying out loud, we announced to you that Neil would be assuming Pat Sullivan's responsibilities in congregational care as Pat's going to the mission field, and Neil's done a fantastic job of that over the summer. But isn't this just like God? You know how sometimes when a couple has trouble conceiving a baby, and so they finally say, okay, this must be God's will, so they start the adoption process, and then all of a sudden what happens? They get pregnant. (laughs) That's kind of what's happened here, is we kind of said, okay, the Lord must not be delivering up this place, so Neil will do this. Right when we made that decision last spring, as I was getting ready for my time away, we were contacted by an existing church in the north part of the air park, about a 12 to 15 minute drive from here, and they inquired of whether we would be interested in adding their congregation of about 200 adults and then a bunch of kids and teenagers to the SBC community as a multi-site. We had never really thought of that. We kind of are more starting our own thing. That's been our history. But they asked if we'd be interested in a merger, if you will, and becoming a part of our community here. And so intrigued by that, I met with their elders last May and talked with them about what it would be like for them to assume our values as a church transformational Bible teaching, engaging worship, elder leadership, authentic community, service-based outreach, the things that make us, us as a community. And they seemed very positive on becoming one of our multi-site communities. And so they had a lot of their leadership visit the Cactus Campus. I told them that would be the next step. And they loved what they experienced with Rick and the Cactus Campus over there. And so it was at this point that our elders took over. And over the summer, a subcommittee of our elders, along with Tom Charter, our executive pastor, spent a lot of time in discussion and prayer with this church. And in late July, the elders unanimously agreed on this, and that is that we would be willing to move forward in discussion with them if 80 to 90 percent of their existing congregation joyfully wanted to become a multi-site of Scottsdale Bible Church. But if they didn't, then that would not be something we'd be interested in because we're not being opportunistic here. We would have other options. But if they really desired to, we would continue talks with them. The elders also decided that Neil Montgomery, because that's what we originally hired him to do, would have to consider being the campus pastor there because that's what we called him to do here. And that would be part of our fleece, if you will, as well. Last weekend, it all came to a head. 
Last weekend, Mountain Valley Church, that's the name of the church, had a congregational meeting. They've had plenty of them over this, but they had another one in which a hand-raised vote revealed that the vast majority, 80-90% of them, wanted to unite with Scottsdale Bible Church as one of our multi-site communities under our doctrine, our elder leadership, and all the things that make us us. And their board met afterward and agreed to unanimously uh, move forward with this if our board would also agree. And so our elders also voted and voted unanimously to move ahead with adding Mountain Valley Church as our next multi-site community. And so that's what we're announcing here this morning is that we are going to be uniting with Mountain Valley and it's going to become Scottsdale Bible Church Mountain Valley Campus. Now we have a ton of work to do. Uh, let me introduce you to this church by uh, showing you on the screen uh, a little bit of Mountain Valley. They, they have their own facility, you can see it there, and uh, they're up in the north part of the air park, I'll show you in a minute. They have a huge worship center. They can see about four to 600 people there that's just decked out and, and beautiful. Uh, they have a full children's ministry space uh, that's age appropriate. They have uh, rooms for junior high as, as well as senior high. In fact, this is their senior high room that's, that's pretty cool. And, uh, and, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful facility. Here's another uh, children's ministry space. The church has been around for about 20 years and has had a good history here. They're just at a time right now where they need to make some decisions, and they have, about how they're going to move forward for the next season of ministry uh, here in the valley. Where is this church, you might be asking, that's now going to become our next multi-site? Here's a map that will help you get your bearings straight. Uh, the bottom right is our Shea campus. That's where we are here right now. Cactus is over there to the west. And then you'll notice on the top there, I call it the north part of the air park, again, about a 12 to 15 minute drive from here is where Mountain Valley is. For those of you who know the area, it would be perimeter uh, drive. They're right on perimeter and around, um, uh, what would it be? Uh, my mind is going blank right now. Princess, thank you. And, uh, and so it's an amazing place. Probably not the ideal location we would have looked for, but we feel that this is very much led by God uh, for us as we strengthen the kingdom of God uh, in this way. Now, there's a lot that we have to do. But we have set a goal that by October 26th, that's just about two months from now, we will have our first full service with them as a multi-site. Neil is there right now, this morning, preaching there and kind of encouraging them as this decision has been made. Dale Galloway is going to assume Neil's responsibility here temporarily for congregational care. But what do we need from all of you? And what do we need from Cactus and from Venue and obviously from our chapel campus? Here's the first thing we need, and I don't say this tritely. We need your prayers. Amen? Let's take another run at that. We need your prayers. Amen? I'm not like Mr. Church Merger Pastor at all. I, I mean, I, I don't know how these things work. It could be as simple as anything. It could be fraught with lots of complications. We have really good elders. We have really solid staff. There's a lot of motivation behind this. But we would ask you to pray for a smooth transition for Mountain Valley as they go through this transition, for our leadership, for Neil. Just bathe us in prayer, please, over the next couple of months. They have an entire existing staff uh, that's going to have to be now assumed into our staff. And so pray for that. 
Second thing we need you to pray about and to even ask God about is that we have about 3,000 families here that regularly worship and call Scottsdale Bible home. We need a hundred of you to, to say that you will follow Neil, follow God as you follow Neil, uh, to the Mountain Valley campus now. In other words, don't miss this, guys. This is a melding, a uniting of two congregations. This cannot just be us assuming to help another church. This is us bringing two congregations together. And if we don't have a mass of people who feel called to do that, then it's really not going to work. So that's where you notice there's a card in your bulletin, and then they're available at Cactus Campus there as well for you to show interest in this. Uh, if you feel at all interested or led to be a part of an exciting venture never done before in the 52-year history of our church, then please fill this out. And we're looking for about 100 families who'd be willing to work with Neil on uh, making this, this uh, uniting of two congregations happen. And so if you live up in 85255 or if you just happen to, to, to be a visionary for this, then we would ask you to fill out a card. And then also if you're interested in the leadership team, transition team of this, then you can talk to Neil directly. So there's a lot of things happening at your church. But here's what you're going to hear today in our time in the Word. God is always in this stuff. Amen? He is always in this. And we're so thankful to him. I mean, just on our knees daily with all the moving parts of our church and what the Lord is doing, again, so that we can win, build, and send, following him in the Great Commission here in the valley. So we're going to turn to the Word right now and uh, continue our series called Avenues. Uh, seven avenues that Mark presents for us on how to know Jesus deeper, and you're going to like today's, I think, the wilderness. So why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness and for your grace and for how you have faithfully uh, led this church over so many years. And, and God, I feel like we're in uncharted territory in so many ways with our compelled by grace vision, which uh, leaves plenty of room, God, for only you to do what you can do. Uh, and I, God, I pray too for now this uh, uniting of two congregations with Mountain Valley. And I pray, God, that you would continue to sustain us, provide for us, give wisdom and skill to our leaders, speak to each one of us on how we can be a part of what you're doing here at our church. God, as we turn to you right now in your word, I pray that you'd speak to us and to our minds and our hearts. And uh, Lord, may we be glad that we came into this place and into one of our venues to hear from you and worship you. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this will get us going in our time in the Word, and it's this, and we all know this, life can change very fast. It, it can change very fast. In fact, it's possible to wake up having a particular mindset or feel a particular way about your life and, and go to bed with drastically altered circumstances. So, for instance, some of you experience this. You wake up with a good job, and you go to bed without a good job. <laughs> Uh, some of you wake up thinking your kids are doing great, and you go to bed getting on Google looking for a good family therapist. Uh, you wake up thinking that financially things are going great. You go to bed wondering how you're going to make the future work. Or how about this one as we get older? You wake up feeling in good health, and then after going to the doctor, you go to bed wondering if your time is not soon. You wake up flying high spiritually and firing on eight cylinders with God, and you go to bed wondering where he is in the midst of this fallen and sinful world. 
You see, here's something we've all experienced. Life can turn on a dime. The simple rising and setting of the sun can bring quick and unforeseen changes to our lives. And so if we're dialing into that right now, the question that I have for all of you is simply this. What do you and I do when that happens to us? I mean, outside of hanging on for dear life, when life changes so fast and so brutally around us, what do we do? And when it happens to those that we love, how do we advise them? And how do we help them through these times? Well, here's a good starting place as well as some great comfort, and that is that as we're continuing on in Mark 1, Jesus, our Savior, the second person of the Trinity, can relate to this because when he was on this earth, he experienced this great day turning into a bad day, this life turning on a dime in his life as well. And so I want to read about it. It's a rather short text because Mark gives us very quick, pithy statements or about accounts in Jesus' life. But if you brought a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. And as you read along with me this text, see if you can pick up on what is happening in Jesus' life here that fits into this good day, bad day motif that almost all of us have experienced. Mark 1, verses 9 through 13. It says, and it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. (laughs) So like, whoa, Uh, talk about going from a good day to a bad day literally overnight. Almost every commentator and Bible expert I reference on this passage points out the absolute dichotomy that's going on here in this passage. Uh, Webster's Dictionary defines a dichotomy as a division of two seemingly mutually exclusive or contradictory groups. In other words, when you have a collision of things in your life that just seem to be completely contradictory, that's a dichotomy. Or is it? You see, that's what's happening with Jesus here. Life turns on a dime. He goes from a good day to a bad day, and it just doesn't even seem right. It doesn't seem to fit. So how do we make sense of this? Three things that this text tells us. Here's the first one, and that is that in a fallen world, life indeed can turn on a dime. We need to come to grips with this and even be at peace with this. That in a fallen world, the first thing that Jesus teaches us here is that life can turn on a dime. And so it's obvious in this passage here how life turned for Jesus, right? Look up here on the screen. It went from baptism to wilderness. Those are the two images you need to have to understand this text. That one day Jesus is getting baptized and it's a glorious moment with him and God, as you'll see in a second, the coming together of the eternal trinity at Jesus' baptism. But then in a split second, literally overnight, he goes into the wilderness. That's why I told you earlier that Jesus can relate to this fact that in a fallen world life can change so fast. So first, very quickly, look at his baptism. Jesus is being baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, presumably to 
validate John's baptism of repentance as well as to declare who he really is as he's going to reveal his status as the Son of God. And as Jesus is coming up out of the water, no less than three powerful and amazing things happen that make this a banner day for Jesus. First, it says in verse 10 that the heavens opened. The heavens opened. We're tempted to gloss over that one, aren't we? Don't miss that. If you're walking down Shea Boulevard this morning and all of a sudden the clouds and the heavens opened in an unmistakable way and you had no natural explanation for it, you would be freaked out. And so everybody was freaking out there because all of a sudden the heavens opened. Something cataclysmic is happening here. For 400 years, they haven't heard boo from God. The theologians call it the silent years between the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, which is what this is here. And now, all of a sudden, the heavens open. And then a second thing happens. It says in verse 10 that the Spirit, like a dove, descends on Jesus. And now everybody is blown away. Interesting, Christians mess this passage up a lot. They say that, you know, a dove descended on Jesus. That's not what it says. It says that the Holy Spirit, resembling a dove, descended on Jesus. But the heart of it all is that the Holy Spirit was descending upon Jesus. That kind of reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where it says the Spirit is hovering over early creation, just about ready to do something that will blow away everything, and that is shape the universe and the earth. And so Jesus is coming up out of the water here. The heavens open, and the Trinity of God is coming together. You have the Son being baptized. You have the Spirit descending upon the Son. And then a third thing happens here. And that is, it says in verse 11, a voice suddenly speaks. And who is that voice? It's God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. And speaking profound words of affirmation, he says to Jesus, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And you got to believe people are passing out about now. Uh, God makes it very clear. Don't miss this. This isn't an eternal statement that God the Father is making. He's not conferring sonship upon Jesus here. He's stating what already is. You are my beloved son. You have been for all of eternity. That's why theologians call this the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All God, three persons, one God, forever for all of eternity. God is, is declaring Jesus' sonship publicly here at the start of his earthly ministry. And it's an intimate and powerful moment for Jesus, no matter how you slice it. So put all this together. The heavens open, the Spirit descends like a dove, God the Father speaks, so Jesus sees something, he hears something, and he experiences something that makes this the most glorious moment for Jesus on planet Earth, as well as for the whole kingdom of God. I want you to think of your best day spiritually. Maybe the day that you came to Christ or the day that you got married or when you finally uh, were able to have victory over sin that's been nagging you for years. Think of your best day spiritually. I don't mean to demean it, but it's nothing compared to the three persons of the Trinity coming together on Jesus' baptism day. You gotta believe that all of heaven is rejoicing. In fact, it blew John the Baptist away so much that it's right after this that he makes that famous statement He's got to increase, I got to decrease. That's the context of that, right? Like he's going, 
I thought I was something before this. I got to get out of the picture now because this is God doing what only God could do. And it's a hallmark day for Jesus. But then Mark uses a phrase that reveals the dichotomy here. And it's such an important phrase, but it's so easy to do a drive-by with it. And it's a two-word phrase in verse 12 there. It's the phrase, and immediately. Do you see that there in verse 12? And immediately. The word literally means directly, straight away. The NIV translation says at once. It simply assumes one thing, no time gap occurring at all. Something is turning on a dime. Something's happening right away. And what is that? Jesus goes into the wilderness. He goes into the barren, lonely, rough, raw wilderness. And then, in like a tit-for-tat fashion, the text here describes three things that occur in this wilderness that equate to the three things on Jesus' baptism day. First, it says there in verse 13 that Jesus stayed there for 40 days. Uh, Mark and Luke tell us he didn't eat for 40 days. Dial into that one. Some of you men get grouchy when you miss one meal. Imagine missing 120. That's what Jesus did. 120 meals he went without in the wilderness there. And the wilderness, most commentators point out, is the opposite of heaven's opening. When the heavens opened and allowed God to shine through, the wilderness was a barren wasteland void of anything that would be life-giving. Then it says in verse 13 that as Jesus was further in this wilderness, the wild beasts were there. Now, some of you are wondering, why do they mention wild beasts? Well, here's why. At his baptism day, what animal resembled the spirit descending on him? A dove. So you have the dove on Jesus' baptism day, a beautiful, serene, powerful thing. And then equating that, you have wild beasts here. And and I think we all understand that when it mentions wild beasts, that's not a positive thing. Over the last 2,000 years, there's been some Christian folklore, I kid you not, in which people have suggested that maybe Jesus tamed these wild beasts in the wilderness. Kind of like Isaiah when he predicted that the lion would lie down with the lamb. The only problem with that is that Mark's not assuming that at all in telling the story here. He's assuming or he's trying to set up a scenario in which we would see the danger and the horror of it all that Jesus, the Son of God, is in a dangerous place where the horrors of ravaging animals are going to be upon him for a month and a half. And then to top off this string of dichotomies, bringing it all to a head, there's also a voice in this wilderness. But it's not like the baptism, the voice of God. Who's it the voice of? Satan. Some of you are saying, well, Mark, it doesn't say that Satan spoke. No, but Matthew and Luke tell us he did. Matthew and Luke add a lot more detail in their telling of the story, and it tells us that Satan spoke to Jesus and tempted him three ways, with fame, with power, and with a chance to get out. And so the baptism, you have God speaking to Jesus. In the wilderness, you have Satan speaking to Jesus. Don't miss this, folks. Life is turning on a dime. This baptism to wilderness dichotomy that Jesus experienced going from being the declared Son of God, complete with the Father's cosmic breakthrough and profound words of affirmation, now to a lonely, dangerous, temptation-filled place that allowed Jesus to experience a fallen world in all of its fullness. And that's why I suggest to you, life in a fallen world can go from baptism to wilderness. How does Mark say it? Immediately, like overnight. 
It, it happens. And if it happened to Jesus, it certainly can and at times will happen to us. And no amount of financial security or a nice house in Scottsdale or working out every day and eating right or even reading your Bible and praying every day can ward off the radical effects of living this side of heaven in a fallen world. And so once again, I ask you, what should be our response to this? I mean, outside of, of getting out of denial, which we should all do, because many Christians fight this cogent theology that the Bible tells us about over and over again, outside of that, how should we respond to this? And thankfully, Jesus' experience here gives us a couple of more profound things that we can take into our mental and spiritual arsenal or place in our arsenal. So here's point two. And that is that we need to realize that God is present and available in all of this, whether it's the baptism or the wilderness. In other words, he meets us in the river as well as in the desert. If you don't hear anything else today, guys, Cactus and Venue Chapel, if you don't hear anything else, please hear this. God is not just in the good stuff. But contrary to popular opinion, he's in the bad stuff. He has promised to never leave us, and he is always with us. And I think this is one of the most profound realizations that comes in this account here of the baptism to the wilderness dichotomy. I mean, to be sure, look again at verses 10 through 13. And notice that Mark makes it very clear, now this is not a mistake, that God is present with Jesus at both events. Obviously, God is present in the baptism. He breaks through and he speaks to him. But did you notice in the wilderness, Mark adds a little phrase there that's very important. It's his closing phrase when he says, and the angels were ministering to him, Jesus. A plurality of angels, like lots of them, uh, were ongoingly, that's the tense of the verb, ministering to Jesus. And though we don't know what they said because... Nay, he, never, he never tells us here, we got to assume that they pretty much were reminding Jesus of who he is, reminding Jesus that he's on planet earth for a purpose, reminding Jesus of his intimate relationship with God the Father that just a day before he was in glory with. The angels were ministering to Jesus. God was front and center even in the wilderness with Jesus. And then as you're hanging on to that, notice a second thing going on in this story, and this one really takes the cake, and that is that the text tells us it's the same Spirit who descends on Jesus as the baptism that also impels Jesus into the wilderness. And now that's fascinating. The same Spirit that parties with Jesus during his baptism day is also the same Spirit that literally forces him into the wilderness. Uh, that word impel here in verse 13 is a very, very interesting word. Uh, the, the English Standard Version says drove. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Uh, the New International Version, I think, totally misses it here. So if you're an NIV lover, I don't mean to rain on your parade, but your NIV says this, that, that the Spirit sent Jesus into the wilderness. Uh, last night, I called that a weenie translation, and I felt that was a bit too strong, and so I sent an apology to Wayne Grudem saying, you know, that might have been just a bit pejorative, and he actually sent me an email back last night saying, I actually loved it. He said, but you might want to use a different word than weenie, uh, like a word like weak 
or, or a word like tepid or, or a word like watered down. So however that speaks to you, I still kind of like weenie, but however that speaks to you, the reality is that's not what this word means. Uh, check this out. This is fascinating. This word is the same word used when Jesus casts out evil spirits from people. He didn't send them out. He cast them out. It's the same word used when Jesus told parables, stories about people being thrown out of kingdoms. It's the same word used when Jesus, remember this, was in the temple and he turned over the tables of the money tables or money changers and then he, he cast them out of the temple. That's the same word used in all of these circumstances. It carries with it a sense of something being forcibly driven along. And that's what you got to dial into. The same Holy Spirit that gently descends like a dove is the same Holy Spirit in charge of sending Jesus, driving Jesus into the wilderness. Because it's all part of God's plan. It's all part of his sovereignty and his care. The same Spirit was in the baptism and in the wasteland. So put this all together. God is present in the baptism and wilderness. We have angels and God's voice at the baptism. It's the same Spirit that's in charge of guiding and driving Jesus in this. And so please see, now, now here's where a lot of Christians go wrong. Please see, what God was most concerned about with Jesus is that Jesus would have a rich sense of God's presence in the midst of the wilderness as well as in the baptism. You see, when we're in the wilderness today, you know what we want God to do? Take it away. Get me out of this place. Fix it. Do something, God, that's going to make this wilderness go away. God didn't do that for Jesus. He did better. He said to Jesus, in the wilderness, I'm going to give you myself. In the wilderness, I'm going to give you a rich sense of my presence, the Spirit driving you in there, the angels ministering to you in it. And that's what makes the difference here. That's the avenue that's what we're talking about in this series. That's the avenue to knowing God is that in the wilderness, and don't miss this, guys, you can find his presence. And though some of you say, big whip, his presence, I want the problem gone, you don't get it. It's his presence, a sense of his peace and his goodness and that he is with you that your soul is longing for more than anything else. It is. I mean, there's lots of things that can fix and take away your problems, but only God can give you his presence. And it's in the wilderness, it's in the difficult times in life that we experience God most profoundly. You know, one of the reasons that this is so important for you and me today is, is that Christians have a really wacky theology today. I, I know no one ever says it like I'm about to say it right now, but I, I hear Christians insinuate this all the time. I hear Christians basically follow the world's logic when they suggest that good things in life mean God. In other words, you get blessed, so you praise God for it. But bad things in life, well, that's Satan, or that's the flesh, or that's the world. And though certainly bad things in life can be caused by Satan, they can be caused by your own flesh, they can be caused by the world, that, that's good theology. To have this overly simple mindset that good equals God, bad equals not God, is downright dangerous because you rob yourself of the avenue that God is also in the bad and that God is also 
in the wilderness. Again, he's not saying, isn't it great you live in a fallen world? (laughs) He's grieved by it too, but he's up to something in it. If, as we'll see in a minute, you get your theology right and open yourself up to the reality that he can be trusted as well in the wilderness. This has actually been a life theme for me. I've been preaching this for 25 years as a pastor, 30 years as a Christian. And a few years back when I was at my last church before I came to Scottsdale here, uh, so it must have been about a decade ago, I was uh, preaching one day on this idea that God is also in the difficult times. And our worship pastor at that time, a wonderful man by the name of Stephen, uh, caught on to this idea that, that God's not just in the good stuff, he's in the bad stuff. He had experienced enough of that himself. He and his, his wife had adopted three racially mixed kids, which sounds so wonderful and altruistic, but you try it. It's a difficult road. Uh, he had had his own issues with his family and growing up and all these things. And so Stephen had experienced some of the difficult parts of life. And, and, and this idea that God is in all of it, especially as a worship creative arts guy, really moved him. So he did what worship guys do. He decided to put a bunch of images to music to try to communicate this sense that God is in it all. And I'm going to show you the video he put together right now. And I want you to do something as, I, as you watch this. I want you to ask yourself, what do I feel as I watch this? I don't ask you to do that very often. I'm a cerebral guy, but, but especially for you men, what do you feel as you watch this? Does this fit your worldview? I mean, this is almost an offensive video outside of this right teaching from the Word of God. I mean, it's so counterculture to how our culture thinks. Ask yourself, how does this make me feel? And then we're going to come and make some sense of it and then wrap things up here real soon. Uh, But this is really important. So look up here on the screen, Cactus Venue and Chapel. Look up on the screen there, and let's all dial into this together.
wild to think that, that God is in all of that. The psalmist at one point was wrestling with this, and he said, where can I flee from your presence? Where can I go that you are not? And he says, if I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to hell, you are there. I mean, that's kind of the, the polar opposites right there. God is everywhere. Uh, the, the, the scriptures call that, or theologians call that, being omnipresent, everywhere present, but not just in some mystical sense, but in a personal sense. That's what this text is trying to teach us. That's what this account is all about. The fact that even for Jesus, the Son of God, when he went from baptism to wilderness, God was present and available in all of it for him. And I know how some of you think. You're thinking, okay, Jamie, I get it. I, I get that that's good theology. But to be honest with you, I, I'm not there. I don't experience that. I'm in the wilderness, and I can't seem to find him. So what do I do then? And that's a good question. And so let's close with this thought. And it's really the last thing this text teaches us. And that is that we are called to be faithful and focused through it all. 
That's how you win with this wonderful theological truth that God is always with you. That even when you don't experience it, even when you don't feel it, even when you don't know or don't uh, experience it, he's with you, the reality is, is that the scriptures call us to be focused on him and faithful to him because though there's weeping at night, there is joy in the morning. And that's how it works. And the reason that we know that this is true in this text here is it's fascinating. If you were a first century Jew uh, reading Mark's words here, and you saw those words wilderness there in verses 12 and 13, you know what you would immediately have thought of? It wouldn't have just been a barren, deserted place. You would have remembered the Old Testament, and get this, how the wilderness was a place of testing. The wilderness was a proving ground. It's where you either proved you were faithful to God or you weren't. When the Israelites wandered in the wilderness and Aaron, uh, when Moses was getting the Ten Commandments, led the people into building the golden calf, he proved he was not doing well in the wilderness. But when David was hiding out from Saul or when Elijah was being ministered to by God in the wilderness, they were proving that this was a place that they could find God. See, the wilderness in the Old Testament was a place where you showed God what your soul was made of as you remain focused and faithful even in the wilderness. The Jews would have known that in the first century, and you and I need to see that today. So what do you do when God can't be found? You stay focused. You stay faithful. Because though there's weeping at night, there's joy in the morning. And so here's the deal. We'll close with this thought. Whether it's baptism or wilderness time for you, here's what I need you to know today. Both of them are avenues to knowing God. And faithfulness is the name of the game in both. He at times will lead you into the wilderness, but in that wilderness, he will also help you to find him and know him. But you need to trust him, and you need to believe that this wilderness has a purpose because he is also there with you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your word comes along and teaches us stuff that our world really does not get and know much about. Lord, we live in a world today that truly assumes that the good things must be of you and the bad things must just come from evil places. And though they do, the reality is is that you're even so powerful that you're in the difficult times. And so, God, I pray for some dear people here today in a cactus venue and chapel that might be going through some very difficult times in their lives, wilderness experiences. And I pray, God, that you would at the very least bring home to them once again today that they can have rock-solid confidence that you are with them in the wilderness. And that, Lord, as they remain faithful and focused upon you, I pray, God, through that kind of perseverance, that you would bring joy very soon to their hearts again as your presence is revealed to them, even in times of testing. God, I thank you for the fact that this becomes an avenue to knowing you, that there's no one here today, nobody in this worship center, that's beyond the scope of your reach and your grace. And so, God, I pray that you would continue to bless us that way. And I pray this in Christ's name, and we all say together, amen. Amen.